Hi everyone, welcome back to The Backbench. This is the ninth episode of the Politics and Current Affairs section of BenchPod and today I'm joined by my good friend Liam. How are you doing? I'm good, Sam. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Liam's been on the sports episode before. Uh, episode, I think, three of... of well, it was, the, I think of it was bench. the third one. Yeah. It might be the third, yeah. Um, that, was, that was a good episode. A lot of uh, debate yeah, on Good there. talking points, good yeah, talking points. we'll have um, more of the same today. Um, we'll go... So, also, before I start, sorry that this is uh, a day late again. Um, <laughs> I've had a couple of issues with internet recently, as I mentioned, and obviously moved back to Cardiff, so I've been a little bit more busy. But, um, yeah, uh, sorry, for, just sorry for, <laughs> sorry for that. Um, <laughs> we'll go straight into the news. Um, so, obviously, last week I did a podcast uh, by myself ranting about uh, A-Level Results Day and how they needed, how it was a shambles and how they needed to give students the grades that they were predicted originally. That was, that I got asked that question at the end, like, what would I do to solve it? And I just said, there's only really one solution. And eventually, <laughs> obviously, obviously the, the UK government listened to BenchPod because they've taken my advice and, and done a whole U-turn. Um, but yeah, it, um, in all honesty, it was the only thing they could do and it was the right thing to do. But um yeah, it, it's the, why didn't they just do that in the first place? To be honest, you know, it wasn't. The the thing is, we've had such a unprecedented year with everything that's been going on, and this was the one thing, the one thing that was in the control of the government, and the one thing that they could actually do to give you know young people a bit of hope, and they royally cocked it up, and then had to go back on their decisions. And made themselves look like even bigger tits, to be honest. So, um, it's yeah, it's just. Though I've I, I've already it's a said side. like you just sum it up in a side, yeah. can't you? <laughs> I already said like a lot about it last week and how much of a shambles it was, and this was something that they should have had control of, as you said, um, at a time of chaos and uncertainty. This was a time to like provide reassurance to show that they were in control of. Some oh, for things. sure. And exactly. to mess it up this badly is embarrassing. It was it was damaging. Um, but yeah, now they've gone they've gone back on, on themselves, and all A level and GCSE students will receive the results that they were originally given by teachers. Um, and now fifth, that means fifteen thousand students now receive their will now receive their first choice uni place, um, mm-hmm. because a lot of students missed out on their uni place because of moderated grades, which from the uh, algorithm by. Um, off quote, I think is what it's called, and it's their moderating algorithm was just binned off basically because it like disadvantaged so many students. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was the right thing to do, and I know there's been lots of um, Gavin Williamson himself. We'll go on to Gavin Williamson in a second, but um, he, as I mentioned last week, he said uh, the danger is that pupils would be overpromoted into jobs beyond their competence which i thought was disgusting for what you said um you you can't i i don't i don't understand the rational thought behind that because as as i said and i come back to exactly the same point this was something that the government had firmly within their control and they just let it you know they just put it in a car you know put the bricks down on the acceleration just drove it off a cliff <laughs> it was it was so easy to make this one happy thing for the students to yeah. take away from the year. But I'm just I'm just glad, as you said, that they have done this U-turn and that students have come out with the outcome that mm. they wanted and deserved. 
Um, I do appreciate that some people's concerns, if you can say that, that um, the grades are overinflated or there will be an abundance of uh, students with high grades. But if that's if that's the worst that's happening, is that is that really bad? Like everyone knows this year's an anomaly. Everyone knows when extraordinary circumstances, as, as we hear every day. Um, if you're if like the worst that's coming out of the situation is that more students are getting higher grades than usual is that really a massive problem i know, I well, know... it's not i think i mean perhaps i can i can see the mentality if, if you're doing something like medicine or dentistry which is obviously requiring you know very very high grades and there, there could be concerns that i i'm just thinking outside the box but let's say for example you're doing you're doing a music degree i don't think it really it really makes too much of a difference if you've been bumped from an A to an A star, if the grade boundary was a, to entry for a B in music. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't really yeah. make much of a difference. Yeah, and, like, it's providing opportunities to people who, like, who need them. Like, students work hard for these. And a lot of people, I've seen oh, a lot God, of people yeah. saying that um, a lot of uh, people who are against this decision, against this U-turn have been saying, oh, why are these students being given their grades for free? That's, that's not really, that's not really fair, blah, blah, blah. But um, students no. haven't, students have worked hard for this. They've studied, fully prepared, in, fully prepared to take their exams and obviously didn't get that opportunity. So when they were initially given grades that most students would have uh, almost definitely achieved high grades if they actually sat the exam, that's that's like naturally unfair. So now that they've been given this opportunity to get the grades that the teachers predicted them, it sets them up for a better future. And yeah, th there may be competi more competition for jobs in the future because more people are better qualified. But we all know that this year was an anomaly and I think it will be looked back upon as such. It's, it's, it's a massive anomaly. And and as, as you say, it's just this this whole year and everything with all this uncertainty and, and what they say about how the students have been given their grades for free, it doesn't make any sense because as you and I, Sam, will know as university students, and it's the same for A-level students and GCSEs, and it doesn't make much of a difference because even in the build-up to your exams, even if you don't sit up to the exams, you're always working, you're always reading, you're always studying things, and you're always learning, especially at A-level and degree, because you are learning things at those levels that you actively enjoy yeah. and actively want to read outside of your syllabus for. So to say they've just been given them for free is bollocks and insinuates that students are learning just for the sake of exams and qualifications because yeah. they're not. Exactly. They're learning for their interests. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, quickly, you mentioned that uh, GCSE results day. This week, um, the proportion of obviously, um, this was GCSE results. They came after the government U-turn, so there was no initial dis well, general no initial general disappointment for GCSE students. Um, national average like rose uh, as a result of this, and you can say yeah, the grades overinflated, but we know that's what's going to happen. We've already we've just gone over that, but um, yeah. So the proportion of GCSE entries receiving the highest three grades, which is um, um, grade seven and above. Uh, rose mm -hmm. from 21.9 percent last year to 27.6 percent in 2020, which is which is which is good as a whole. Like as as I said, like yeah, that is partially, if not largely, down to um, t uh, students receiving predicted grades from teachers. But as we said, this was the only real solution to the problem. The th the thing is, is that 
the examiners only get to only get to see a snippet of what and and this is this is what I largely found when I did my GCSEs and especially with science that my entire year of studying biology was judged by one 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 hour biology exam at the end of the year same with chemistry same with physics and the the examiners will see this snippet of what the student has learned across the year and they won't know the student they won't know the teachers and they'll just they'll just, they'll just be a candidate number to them and they'll just mark the paper and then give them a grade the student the teachers excuse me have so much more of an insight into how these students learn and what they what their real ability is and they will know whether and obviously there might be other personal circumstances on the day which could affect the yeah. outcome of their results students sorry teachers will have a much better understanding of what the students actually deserve oh yeah absolutely um they're in a better position to like no one's going to understand their students better than the teachers themselves and no um i people will always argue like oh the teachers are going to be biased and just over predict their students if you're like if this the teachers aren't gonna give uh, a student who's looks set to get uh, i don't know three d's they're not going to predict a student three a stars because they know that will harm them in the in the long that's, term that's ridiculous exactly so like it's not like teachers are just gonna <laughs> do um over mark on purpose they're doing what they think is in the best interest and what they think is the most accurate for their own students so they are undoubtedly well equipped to deal with the situation exactly because the as you said that no one knows the students better than the own teachers their own teachers and what what this original sort of downgrading system showed really is that the government have very little faith in the teachers to do their job properly which yeah. is which is disgusting um we will go well, i mentioned gavin williamson earlier so we might as well talk about him now uh, mm-hmm. he's defended his holiday that he took a week before A-level results day. Um, and also, while I'm here, I might as well mention that Boris Johnson is also on holiday at the moment because he's been his, his uh, fiancée has been posting pictures of it uh, everywhere. So, uh, before I go into it, I'm going to... We we do know that um, Parliament is in recess and they're allowed to take some time off. You know, they work, politicians work hard. They deserve a bit of a break. But... I don't think taking a taking holiday before the catastrophe of a day that was A level results day is acceptable. If if like they'd had it sorted beforehand and had a plan, even if even if they did know what was going to happen, which they did, um, if they had a plan to like yeah. combat that and like say, oh, this is like this is fine. This is this is how we're going to deal with this issue. Like then you could probably excuse it. But Gavin Williamson went on holiday. Full, knowing full well that students were going to be really hard done by on results day after ex- especially after seeing uh what how it initially happened in scotland that arguably makes it worse seeing it happen in scotland and then going with the exact same approach i know and, and, and uh, scotland didn't scotland u-turn it before the results of day as well yeah uh, the well re- the results came out and then um there was they had to do it they did it instantly afterwards there was no like there was no like delaying in their decision. They the students were really hard done by in Scotland, and then they came out instantly, apologised, and U-turned. Um, a lot quicker than the UK government. But again, I'm not defending the Scottish government here because they they slipped up massively as well. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Gavin Williamson at least has come out and apologised for the disappointment and uh, 
disappointment he caused which is which is rare for a cabinet minister to come out and directly apologize so i'm not i'm again i don't want to I don't want to sound like I'm giving him lots of credit because that is the bare minimum. Like <laughs> that is what he should be doing. At least, at least he took some sort of accountability. Yeah, at least he, though. yeah. but then and Dominic Cummins. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So then Boris Johnson's on holiday as well, which is I know I know people would say that he needs a break. If I was in his position, yeah, I'd probably want one as well. But he he his voice needs to be heard, like essentially at all times during a oh, time it does. like this. Um, so. Going, going AWOL for a little bit isn't, well not AWOL, but just disappearing for a little bit isn't really helpful. Um, but yeah, at least Gavin Williamson came out and apologised. They did try and spin it in a way that was just like, uh, we're doing what's, we now we now are doing what's in the best. It was, it was, it was marketed as like, we are doing what's in the best interest of students rather than we're sorry for what we've done to students. No, it's, it's, they, they saw, they so. saw, again, they sort of, he sort of politicized his apology, you could say. And I think the problem with Boris is, and it's, I th- I think maybe this, this could be part of the reason why we went on holidays because it, it was like a politicized, it was a campaign. It was like with what, when the shopping centers opened, Boris was at the shopping centers when, when um, like the cost of coffee and stuff opened, he's wandering around with the cost of coffee. Now he's on holiday because you can book holidays, etc. I think he's basically all saying, oh, uh, yes, I'm doing all these wonderful things. These are all marvelous. Yes, you can come and do them as well. But as you said, it, it came at massively the wrong place in time when he had bigger things on his mind, especially after the Royal Cock Cup that was Scottish Results Day. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, tell you what, now that was a brilliant idea. And they obviously went against that. Now let's replicate that idea in the next week and make an even bigger mess. Yeah. And they went and did that. And they had, this is the problem. They saw the mess in Scotland and still went ahead with it anyway. Exactly. And so, then rectified it. It was just stupid. It was, that's like, there was so many components to this mess on the results. They like knowing that they had ages to come up with something that would be fair. Um, they saw it happen in Scotland. Then... Gavin Williamson came out with came out of the quote about pupils being overpromoted, and then we saw that private schools' grades were fine, and like there was just oh, it's it was an embarrassment on the whole. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, I personally I don't think Gavin Williamson is uh, is going to survive this politically. Um, I think he'll cling on to it for a little bit, and then I feel like he's going to be kind. Of, there's been like theory suggesting that he's going to be offered up as like a lamb to the slaughter, basically. When ti- when it when the when the time comes for uh, the Conservative government to take responsibility, they're going to send off like maybe make an example out of Gavin Williamson, like oh yeah, look, we got one of them. We're taking responsibility for our actions. Um, so I don't feel like he'll last much longer. No, I but, think um, his days are numbered. His yeah. days were even. I mean, Theresa Theresa May sacked him. <laughs> Of course, that was that was with the. Um, I think it was with he was selling. Wasn't he selling information or something to Huawei? There was some sort of conspiracy mm-hmm. there. But I think the whole premise of Theresa May, who wasn't necessarily a very charismatic, strong leader, um, to be polite, to sack him, I think there must have been something there. Yeah, um, I just I just can't see him after it's bit of a miracle that he's hasn't he's still in the job at the moment i think personally he should resign um yeah because that'd be best for him yeah I'd, so but yeah as as i said i think he's going to try and cling on to his job for now and the, the government are keeping him there um boris was prepared to back him on results day saying he he did an interview uh, where he said that the 
exam grades exam grades were robust and dependable when he said those words about 27 times um but yeah i i, I just think when when the time comes when say there's uh i i, I think there'll be a time near near to the end of the pandemic or say hope and again touch wood that say things start to get worse like um in terms of the pandemic if there's mm-hmm. m- more attention terms uh more scrutiny on the government i feel like they'll they might want to make an example out of one of their ministers ministers to claim that they're taking responsibility we know a lot of and, and especially working in government at that at that highest level it's, it's a really sort of cutthroat affair and, yeah. and a lot of a lot i wouldn't say obviously all that wouldn't be fair but a lot of people in you know in in that sort of situation at the minute in the cabinet etc you can see like with gavin williamson with boris johnson dominic cummins there are some really powerful influential people there who are not afraid to cut above the rest and you know step on others to get what they want yeah um we'll go into the next story which is uh just a bit of a depressing one really that the uk is officially in recession and national debt has exceeded two trillion pounds for the first time um it's, it's obviously an indicator of how bad this pandemic has been, uh, how hard it's hit every country financially, and um, there's there's been there are obviously currently attempts to revive the economy, people being encouraged to to um go, to go obviously with the eat out to help out scheme, people being encouraged to go and go, go shopping, people being encouraged to go on holidays in places that they're allowed to. Um, Rishi Sunak was even considering apparently a, a tax on online shopping to encourage more high high street shopping, but um, yeah, it's just it's just not really. It's the outlooks. It's a bit bleak at the moment. You know, I I think I think because I went um I went out shopping on the days last week, and I think in a lot of respects with this holy doubt to help out scheme, I think in a lot of respects they've got it wrong. In fact, because the high street has been dying for years. And if anything, this whole pandemic is just throwing nails in the coffin because it's the convenience of online shopping. You see something you want on Amazon, you've got Prime. You click; it's, it's, it's at your door the next day. You don't even need to move. You don't even need to move off your ass, and it's there for you. And and I think with this eat out to help out scheme, you're obviously getting discounts from big chains. You know, like Costa, Nando's, and McDonald's. They don't need an eat out to help out scheme. No. They don't. They McDonald's doesn't need. Any tout to help out scheme. What about the maybe maybe the smaller restaurants and the more independent pubs, etc. That's that's very different. But the bigger chains don't need it in comparison to a lot of the high street shops um, that may that may benefit off it a lot more. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, I, I it does make sense. Like I don't really understand why. Um. I guess I guess it's to encourage people to go everywhere. Like it would be like neglecting um, some places if you, if you said that. Um, obviously, place a big corporation like McDonald's don't need the money, but they'd probably have something to say. If like, oh, why aren't you encouraging people to come here? Like, but yeah, it's just so people, uh, people go to McDonald's. Exactly, it's not like it's not like people are going to st- stop going to McDonald's. Um, but anyway, it's just a bit. Uh, it's just a bit sad at the moment, especially knowing that. Um, all this money with the furlough scheme and the eat out to help out money, all the money that's been put into um, combating uh, the, the effects of the pandemic, it's all going to have to be repaid at some point. 
Um, well, we knew we knew this was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, it was a bit I of an inevitability. It was, it was it was fairly obvious that obviously after the the market crash of two thousand and eight, and that was bad. Um, you know, I I think over this whole scenario, and and obviously with all the money that was with all the furlough schemes and all the out to help out scheme, to an extent, obviously you know those, those schemes are good. Those schemes are very important, but the money had to come from somewhere. Yeah. And now we are starting to see the after effects of that and how our country is suffering greatly mm. because of it. Um, for the next story, we've got the UK's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, saying that, uh, uh, I'll get the quote up actually, so I know I'm, so I can be accurate with it. But uh, he said that um, it was more damaging in the long term for students to not return to school than it was for them uh, than COVID-19 was so, so, um, so yeah he said it's, it's more damaging the children missing school is more damaging than the risk of COVID-19 um, he's made it clear that the chances of children dying from COVID-19 are incredibly small but missing school damages children in the long run to quote him and he's also made it clear that there's well it looks as though there's much less transmission from children children to adults than adults to adults and it was really surprising to hear Chris Whitty say this the whole time as he's been he hasn't he's been the um I don't want to say pessimistic one within the government he's probably been the more been you'd call him a realist like he's been he's been fairly straight up with the public he's he answered oh, God, when, yeah. they, when there was when they were doing the uh, daily briefings which seems like years ago now but um mm-hmm. when uh when he was out there he would always give a straight up a straight up answer as he could he was clearly a man that was genuinely guided by the science whereas the government that was just seemed to be a tagline for the 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 politicians but um yeah it was surprising to hear him say that which is i I wouldn't call it a political statement but it it almost seems that way well it was the the thing is you you mentioned with the daily briefings it was it was the it was the trilogy it was you had patrick valance boris johnson and chris whitty whitty and valance either side and Basically, Boris, <laughs> contract tracing, contact tracing, contact that that whole spiel, and he and he just could never get his words out. And then he would basically Chris Whitty would have to come pick up the pieces, and then would basically refine every word the Boris had said and made it logical and down to earth to the public. Yeah. Um, and I think the entire time, especially with all the stuff that Boris was saying at the time, Chris Whitty was probably standing there curling his toes in his shoes. Um, and he's and he's been a man, as you said, a man of sense, and he's definitely a very intelligent person. But this this thing seems a bit stupid from him because the problem is is that even though the risk is great, is smaller, that could be a fair statement. I'm not a medical specialist, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you can't say there is no risk. And yeah. I know. Um, I think I know in, in schools in, in Wales, I think this was mentioned as part of the education secretary's briefing that they were going to be sort of like bubbles of like 30 kids in a class. And like a, a class would be a bubble and, and the children in that bubble wouldn't have to mix. But then you're saying that, and then Mark Drakeford, the first minister of Wales, said that under 11 year olds don't have to socially distance. So essentially all the kids in this school even though they have to be in a bubble, they also don't have to social distance outside of that bubble. So where do you draw the line? Exactly. And when you've got big groups like this meeting together, and even even when it was at its worst, I always saw groups of kids in my local park and everything else. Where do you, how can you 
be sure that there isn't exactly how is this how is this going to be enforced safely um it doesn't there hasn't really been a clear outline there's just been like oh yeah keep uh two meter social distancing in schools or one meter plus or um this is in england at least but um it's just uh, another message of like yeah we need to do this but the the route there is isn't clear and it just hasn't it has that's been a bit of a theme the the whole this whole pandemic like we've we've seen the government has set out a destination and says yes and said yes this is where we're aspiring to be if you if we all work together this is where we'll get but then they haven't set out a roadmap of how it's going to be done safely and effectively and that's just a bit unacceptable to be honest um doesn't make any sense yeah but um Keir Starmer has also said that well, uh, I mentioned this last week that um Starmer's demanded that uh, kids go back to school in his own words like he expects them to so um I, I might as well get out of the way and do my weekly run on Keir Starmer um <laughs> even though I I've said that I had I've uh d- he probably would have been out of actually let me try and how should I phrase this um I mentioned last week that I wasn't a Labour member at the time when Starmer became Labour leader, but if I was, I would have voted for him despite Rebecca Long Bailey being my personal preference. Um, I just think Starmer is by far the most he, I still think, in, in fairness, he probably was the right man to be chosen because he's by far the most electable. Um, and that that's it. Uh, but he, he's his will, his willingness to sit on the fence on near enough every issue until until it becomes like an urgent time to pick a side like with schools um he initially said don't go don't send the children back to schools and took the side of the took the side of the trade unions um then he's then he refused to take a side as a government uh dithered over whether they should send kids back to schools he just sat on the fence and now he's gone let's send children to schools um so he's changed his mind on that again sitting on the fence until the last minute uh he's again with he still hasn't um <laughs> still excuse me he still hasn't condemned uh Rosie Duffield for her transphobia on Twitter she's still a functioning member of the Labour Party um he he still hasn't uh really picked a side on this uh and in the traditional labor policy of guaranteeing rights and support for migrants he's still Diane Abbott's called him out for that actually um so again he I just I just want Keir Starmer as I just want Keir Starmer to show some kind of potential as a Labour leader. It's hard to articulate because I know, I, I know, I know that like he is really electable and he's he doesn't he's not really in the job right now to be pleasing mm-hmm. Labour supporters. He's he's got the job of winning back voters that he's lost. Not not hit not that he's lost that um, the Labour Party's lost. Um, so he does he his priority at the moment is never going to be to satisfy the left of the party or even just the Labour Party as a whole he's got a appeal to those who have uh to like centrists and moderate voters even even uh traditional conservative voters as well and like I do get it it's just frustrating to see when he could be someone that comes in and puts in place big social change even if he's even if he showed a willingness to do that um but he just hasn't <laughs> I think that the problem is, is that I think every political leader needs consistency. And yes, you can make the argument that he's consistently on the fence, but you need you need someone who is consistently one way or another. And I think a lot of politics comes from that and it and it generates a lot of trust 
in um in and faith from the people to elect this person and mm -hmm. to approve this person and if you are consistently changing your mind and consistently sat on the fence about different things and you're not really getting involved and having your say on things where you really as you mentioned with the the whole transphobia issue in um, the labor party then that that is it that those are some red flags and the problem is with with the Labour Party, with with transphobia, that is that is something that really Keir Starmer ought to come out and resolve, yeah, and it's, it's... and release a statement on very quickly because they they were the whole um the the whole sort of anti-Semitism issue that was very prevalent um, yeah. in, in um when Corbyn was in charge, and they don't really need any more issues. So I exactly. think coming out and addressing that and sort of putting that to bed in a very mature mm -hmm. upfront way is the sort of step that. He has done when he's to take, and he hasn't. That's what he should be doing. Um, but he's made it. It is now clear to a lot of people, I think, that he is prioritizing anti-Semitism over any other issue. He's he's come in, and obviously, in fairness, anti-Semitism has been something that's plagued the Labour Party for the last few years. Um, and he's come in and be like, I'm going to, I'm going to come in, root this out. This is unacceptable. We need to move away from that, which is fair. That's that's good. He needed to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you you can't. Be, I don't think you can. You can really prioritize one form of discrimination over another because what, discrimination. It, it doesn't matter whether it's gender, religion, race, um, sexuality. It doesn't make a difference. Discrimination is discrimination. That's that's exactly what I was about to get onto because even there's. Clearly other forms of racism within the Labour Party has been, as I mentioned on this podcast quite a few times before, the discrimination towards uh, Diane Abbott from within the own party, within from within her own party, um, Labour MPs, uh, also like selling her out basically. Um, like when I've said they sold stories about her crying to crying as a result of racist abuse and they sold stories to the papers, um, but which is proven in the Labour leaks. Again, the Labour leaks, which he really failed to address, which ultimately proved that a group of centrist MPs conspired to undermine uh, Jeremy Corbyn and were were hopeful that, that he would lose the 2017 election. Um, again, something to not comment on that. He's like He hasn't commented on that. And I've also said before, you can call it a conspiracy, but what, like when Rebecca Long-Bailey was sacked over anti-Semitism, um, which I've said it was very naive from her to retweet the article that she did, even though she was not directly being anti-Semitic um, at all. And yeah, it was you can it's up for debate whether the article itself was. Um, that seemed as much of an attack on the left of the party as it did on the issue of anti-Semitism. So he's just all these factors combined with like him failing to like. So Black Lives Matter, for example, when he referred to it as a moment, which was he apologized for actually he he mm, he said I'm yeah. sorry and he he said I'm sorry if people took offense to that. So he didn't really apologize for that. No, um, yeah, horrible, he, yeah. He called it a moment. He there's a picture of him and Angela Rayner kneeling, and then he came in and basically did an interview saying like, uh, just essentially not agreeing with any of the structural changes that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement wanted to see in the UK, and. So again, performative allyship. Um, just yeah, all these factors combined with the fact that he doesn't seem he seems to lack the conviction and principles that previous Labour leaders have had. Like even Corbyn, for all his flaws, he had he was convic he 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 had conviction. He had principles. You could tell he was in a job to make change. And I I really can't say the same about Keir Starmer. So.
and I, I think the thing is as well, as, as you mentioned, that he's sort of, he, he's sort of trying to um, bring in support from all ends of the Labour Party. It's almost like he's trying to make everyone happy in all, but he's doing it in all the wrong ways. Yeah. And I think the thing was, say what you like about Corbyn and say what you like about Blair, but Corbyn was the far left of the Labour Party and that was the way he was. And it was, and you were either with him or you didn't like him. Blair was the right of the Labour Party. If you didn't like Blair, you weren't with Blair. Starmer is trying to be left, right, centre and everything in between. And he's and he's not sort of making a, a firm stance on his beliefs. As I said, it's consistency. And he's not having consistency yeah. and he's not in in sort of trying to appeal to every sort of end of the labor spectrum he's hurting a lot of other ends of the labor spectrum and he's hurting a lot of the public's it's, opinion yeah. of him in general he's made a point out of bringing back party unity to the labor party and is failing in it so far um he's because in fact he's, he's just put he's just making yeah. more, and more divides it is it is possible to be a type of leader like you said that draws um, support and attention from across the political spectrum. If you look at um, uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada and his Liberal Party, which and mm. its association, association with what is called big tent politics, which is just basically taking as many ideas as you can from across the spe- uh, political spectrum and putting it in, all into this one big centrist party that, that um, has elements of each ideology. Um, mm-hmm. which in turn appeals to everyone because there's essentially something for everyone in the party. And Trudeau gets a lot of criticism for, again, sitting on the fence as many issues as possible because that is his, that's his thing. Big tent politics is centrism. Um, and I, I feel like Keir Starmer needs to make his mind up of whether he wants to be uh, a centrist, like in the image of Tony Blair's New Labour, or whether he wants to be um, a leftist that, that draws that that has aspects of a centrist government like he's he's he needs to sort it out basically time's on it time's on his side but like i'm just losing patience a little bit i i think the problem is as you say with trudeau is, is a good example of how centrism can be done um but Starmer is is trying to be a little bit of because I I think any healthy government should have a little bit of liberalism, a little bit of socialism, perhaps a little bit of conservatism, perhaps a little bit of nationalism, so that they are all sort of complement each other. And it's a very very healthy dosage of each that's not sort of discriminate against anyone, that's not making anyone feel disadvantaged, and and I and I think. On the whole, a, a more centrist approach to government is what's healthy because you have to, ultimately, whether you are Labour or Conservative, you've got to work with not just the other major party, but you've also got to work with all the other minority parties in the room. And like I said, with Starmer, and he's and he's having, and if we focus on Labour, it's not on a, a, um, a politics-wide scale in the UK. He's not dealing with all these little parties. He's just dealing with with Labour itself. And these, there's all these little groups in Labour, and these all these there are all these little divisions in Labour. And Starmer is trying to bring them all together. And what I don't think he realizes is that oh, on a that I don't think he will be able to see eye to eye on some areas, you know, in in some areas that he will be able to see eye to eye with. And he needs to make a mind up on where he sits. Yeah, I think. absolutely. Um, so, yeah, as I said, time's on his side, but he needs to, I feel like he needs to get his act together sooner rather than later, to be honest, um, before people start to lose patience with him in general. 
Um, and we've got our final news story, which is that the chief of the World Health Organization says that he hopes the pandemic will be over in um, in two years. Um, a lot of people were... I saw a lot of people surprised by this because some people were under the impression that it'd be over early next year. Um, obviously, that's the, <laughs> the, the uh, optimistic outlook. Um, Apologise, <laughs> I, no, I, it's, uh... it's like a lot of people were like, Huh? This is this is isn't there a vaccine coming like really soon? Or like oh, okay, yeah, hopefully, but no, this isn't oh, this isn't the case. <laughs> we don't know. Like um, we don't know. This is the thing. Um. So yeah, I I guess like um. Obviously, it can take years for a pandemic to be officially over because of the nature of them. Um. That's that's not to say that it won't be over in some places. It's if like mm. it could be over. Um. It's practically over in Wuhan now. Exactly. Touch wood. Um, yeah um but yeah I, I i feel like this is in two years is probably a fairly in in reality it's probably a fairly optimistic outlook it doesn't mean that we're still going to be social distancing in 2022 that's not really what he's saying he's saying like the pandemic as a whole is hopefully going to be over in uh two years obviously he, he did mention that we could have a vaccine before then and um treatments have been reportedly uh improving and then we could hopefully have a even a cure before, before well at some point uh, but as at the moment we don't and at the moment we don't know if we're going to get either of those things so it's that's just the uh i i think that it, it would it you know what it would be absolutely lovely if this was over by the by the start of next year but i i think in in the polite in the politest possible way to those who think that i think that is that is that is quite dangerously naive to think that we'll be out of this by the start yeah. of next year because i think the the next biggest challenge the next biggest challenge for the for society especially with the uk is going to be the universities because back in march when all the universities shut down you had these clusters of students and obviously we know young people are notorious for spreading it in the universities and they were taking it back into the communities now you're going to have students from all different parts of the UK and all different places from all over the world who will be who will be bringing, um, you know, from different communities who may or may not be carrying the virus, but they will be coming back to one centralized location that um, inhabits like thousands and thousands of people. And we know at the minute across the UK, the RA is fluctuating between 0.9 and 1.1. Mm-hmm. That's concerning enough. And I think... It's, they were, I think it's, I definitely think a second wave is on the cards. I've, that's always been a concern of mine. And I think that it is essentially going to be a waiting game. The, 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 it'll go, the um, um, figures will go up, then they'll go down, they'll go up and then they'll go down. And then eventually they'll be able to decline, hopefully with a cure. I think we will come to a point, though, where if I had to say social distancing will go, and it'll just be wear masks, use hand sanitizer, mm-hmm. and just stay safe, and maybe just sort of keep your friendship circles small. But I, I think maybe sooner rather than later. I, I think towards the start of the year, next year maybe, or mid middle of next year, I think we may start to see social distancing being phased out or yeah. definitely I reduced. Think, I think there are a lot of people have, even scientists have been saying that um, we'll see the worst of it throughout twenty twenty, and then. We'll see that hopefully see the page start to turn um yeah in early, I, I early think to mid twenty twenty one. And when I say start start to see the page turn, that doesn't mean the pandemic's gonna be over, but that like 
as you said um social uh, people have been getting increasingly frustrated with social distancing because um i think chris chris witty said we're now this was a couple of weeks ago um that we're at the limit of what we can do um while social distancing remains in place this is like the most smart things can uh, are open as they can be a nice um, a nice example there of chris ritty saying something sensible exactly um but um it's just i uh, people are getting t- a bit a bit tired of social distancing and un- understandably so because it obviously interrupts everyone's life in a massive way um but yeah i i just it's it's interesting and like i feel like it could be something that's phased out eventually um that, that again that's something that's been discussed uh, previously the, the the really like fascinating idea of a social ending of pandemics when uh, the population as a whole grows tired of social restrictions and the disease becomes endemic and uh, everyone gains a natural herd immunity which is weird but um something that is entirely possible i think um but yeah i just I, obviously i'm always hopeful that like um it will, I don't know, some, they will like mutate and uh, like weaken and gradually fade, fade, out, fade out by itself, which is a really, really small possibility, but it's, it's exactly. Um, and then hopefully there's obviously hope for a vaccine, hope for potential treatments. And yeah, it's good to keep out hope for them, but it's also very important to be realistic and not get ahead of ourselves. Um, no, I, I, uh, like I know. Um, one of, this was ages ago now, but it was very, I thought it was massively irresponsible of Boris Johnson to say that he hoped for normality by Christmas, um, because well, I, I, which has made me think like, did the government know something that we don't? Because most people are saying it's not going to be over until like mid next year at the late at the at the very <laughs> earliest. So like, um, yeah, that was weird. But and it doesn't look like he's going to be right with that. So. It, it's it's a conversation that I'm obviously vehemently avoiding with most people that I know and all the, all my um family etc. But I I would be extremely surprised if we are back to normality yeah. by, and and the thing is we we use that we use this term all the time of back to normality. But what is normality really? And even when you've got a cure, I still think those systems of using hand sanitizer when you go into shops etc perhaps having perhaps having the screens you know in coffee shops Mm -hmm. and by the tills in shops i think little things like that that Mm -hmm. help with hygiene should stay in place oh yeah the world's like changed for good now like the world the world will never be the same i can't look at videos of big crowds the same anymore (laughs) like no like it's so weird but um absolutely there's going to be things that remain and remain in place that that in reality should have should have been in the first place like there was a video that went round of um i can't remember what cinema it was but uh cinema staff working really hard to clean the cin- clean the cinemas after there'd been a, a screening in there um mm-hmm. and people were like does does this not happen all the time like is this not standard procedure and apparently it's not but like it's this that's like a small example of like what will remain in place uh post pandemic um mm. whenever that happens and as, as i said i think it's I definitely think social distancing will be phased out in that because it's the, the thing is I can I can understand obviously why people get so frustrated with social distancing etc but unfortunately we we are living in a very unprecedented situation that none of us can control and you know as far as we know none of us mm. no one really has an answer for and all we can do 
is stay vigilant, keep ourselves safe, maintain social distancing, wash our hands, wear masks, etc. where necessary, and not get complacent. And I think that is a very big concern heading heading now as as we as more things get opened up it's a worry that there will be this sense of complacency that people yeah. will think oh these things are opening up we can all go back to normal and everything's as normal when it isn't because you can do those things but safely and you have to do those things following the measures and it's yeah. going to be a case now as to whether or not people will uphold that <laughs> For this segment of episode, we are going to discuss the upcoming uh, US election and the Democratic National Convention that happened this week. And uh, it's a good time as well because the uh, Republican National Convention is coming up very soon. I think it's next week. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting time for US politics, uh, as it always is, to be honest. Um but yeah, stops being joyous. It it doesn't. Um, so I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you just um go off of this one. Like, what did you? Obviously, we had the Democratic National Convention, and people, were, well, fans of Joe Biden were pretty pleased with his performance. At, at I um yeah Tennessee. I um I saw a couple of things on on Instagram that were talking about um how his speech and everything. Even though he was reading off a teleprompter, he was um <laughs> very good and very articulate. And I think, as you said, fans of him will certainly be happy that they've they've got because I I think I think it it sort of come to a point really where it doesn't really you know you could have Mickey Mouse for the Democrats. It it it's it, it's all about. It's all about trying to get Trump out of office. Yeah. Um, I think by no means am I a, a fan of Joe Biden. No, but, I, I, um, wouldn't, I, I, pr- I wouldn't perhaps say I am either. I, I sort of, but, it, but it's, the, it's the lesser of two evils. Oh, 100%, 100%. Um, which is unfortunately the case a lot of the time in politics. Um, like you've, in, you're forced to choose between two candidates and you you you're inclined to pick the one that is less bad in your view um but uh yeah less bad it's it's, less um but um yeah he spoke again this is this is rare for joe biden but he spoke articulately he spoke coherently clearly impressively and like that's that was i can imagine loads of um democrats breathing a sigh of relief um when it when it came to that um it's it, but just mainly because that is one of the biggest concerns about him, about him. Um, I'm I'm still concerned about when they have TV debates because even though like Trump has got he's got a lot of problems, but he's a good campaigner and a pretty good pretty good t- talker sometimes. Um, and certainly I think he's probably a better talker than than Biden is. Like I'm not sure. I'm still concerned about Biden holding his own in in tv debates but um if if that, i th- i think trump will wipe the floor with that's him. what I, that's my i don't concern. i don't i yeah. i would i absolutely hate the thought of that but you can even see with clinton i mean to it to to a degree she did hold her own in some of the tv debates mm. but a lot of the time because it's it's it's, it's trump's very sort of shouty yeah. aggressive um oppressing demeanor um that basically stops anyone getting ahead of mm-hmm. him and that's him 
basically take control of every situation. It's it's the and the thing is as well is that even though he looks like a dick doing it, he will literally as as we've seen with the whole COVID situation in America, if he doesn't like questions he's asked, he'll just literally just get up and just walk out of conferences. Yeah. I'm I'm just is yeah Biden in 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 the debates is concerning because of how how he talks and his mannerisms and how he comes across but again if that speech is anything to go by then we shouldn't really be concerned because that came across well but yeah he was reading off a teleprompter and he had uh a lot of time to prepare for it but hopefully he can keep that going in um uh, in debates i feel like some someone like um bernie sanders or even elizabeth warren would have quite easily held their own in, in debates against uh donald trump mm. m- more so than biden at least but um yeah, so it's just it's just again a really interesting time for U.S. politics. Biden is comfortably ahead in the polls, polling over fifty percent at the moment. Um, Trump's down in like the thirties, I believe, um, which is interesting because again, at the, around this time, uh, Clinton was around the same numbers as Biden, and we all know how that uh, ended up. Yep. Um, but, but, but Clinton won the popular vote. It was did. the electoral yeah. college that flipped it for Trump. I mean, if you if you had to say now, if I were to ask you now, if you if you are to say, who do you think is going to win the U.S. election? Who would you say? I would say Biden. And I, f- I feel like I, I feel pretty confident in saying that. But at any time, like I'm, I'm consistently proven wrong by American politics. But um, <laughs> but I do I do think I do think Biden is going to win. Um just because I feel there's there's a sense of like American people are losing patience with Trump, even even his his traditional base. Like he he hasn't really he's done a lot of things during his presidency to annoy a lot of people and to anger a lot of people and to harm a lot of people. Um, and I feel like his time is finally running out like i feel like even he knows that he's on the ropes a little bit with while he keeps talking about like this election is going to be fraudulent i'm going to send the military to make sure people are voting properly um all that kind of thing like because he knows he's up against it at the moment um and i just i just can't really see him surviving but again i i couldn't see him being elected and he was so um this this is this is the thing. I mean, I I strongly am against Donald Trump. I think he's an absolute tool in every single sense of the word. But I honestly believe that Trump will get reelected because I am of the mentality that, especially we've seen very recently in the news with Steve Bannon um, and across all the allegations of Russian interference and the, the sort of fake news on Facebook, etc., I think it comes down to if Trump wants to win, he will find a way. Yeah. I think I unfortunately think that's what it comes down to. And I think even though he came across very articulate in the DNC, as as you said, I as we said, I think Trump will probably wipe the floor with him when it comes to debates. Unlike Bernie Sanders, I don't could probably hold his own, unfortunately, against him and I think the poll numbers will change quite dramatically after those debates. And mm. and I also think that 
as as you said, you didn't think he'd get there in the first place, but he got reelected in the first place, and I he got elected in the first place. Sorry, and it was he um he he still won the midterms, even though he lost control of the House of Representatives. He retained control of the Senate, mm. and when there was all the talk of him being impeached, and he's been officially impeached, um, and everyone um celebrated how much of an achievement that was. Unfortunately, it isn't necessarily an achievement as such because he's got to get removed from office yeah it's... at the end of the day him being impeached doesn't really change an awful lot mm-hmm. in, it's, it's just a name the actual process of removing him from office is the thing that will be really significant and bill clinton didn't get removed from office either um nixon nixon was on the border of being impeached but stepped down mm-hmm. you know i i just struggle to see how Trump, how sorry, Trump, Trump wouldn't get reelected because, as I said, for one, he was elected in the first place, yeah, and he's done a, a lot of very awful things over the, his first term, and I think he a, the, a lot of the hate that propelled the things that he did essentially would just would just propel into um that he that he said uh, the hate that he carried in his original campaign mm. essentially propelled into his first term yeah. and a lot of the things that he said he wanted to do in a lot of respects he's done especially his policies on on immigration and then doing a lot of what um obama did with his um whole dreamers um campaign and how much he's clamped down on detaining illegal immigrants and you see all the um all the children in cages sort of separate with their families and he's made a right fucking mess of that to be honest and i just i just think he is a man too powerful with too many people around him in a system that's all too corrupt mm-hmm. to stop him from doing anything yeah i i feel like if he if he survived like most of the things that he survived to this point, he can probably survive anything. Um, so like, if if he's still the fact that he's still in power and still got a massive swathe of support, um, that shows that it's it's really not unlikely that he he'll he'll get reelected because, as you said, like he's done all these done all these things, these things to his own detriment so far, and still in a this. The position as president, which is a, obviously quite obviously a, a, a strong position, he's got all these people around him to help him get reelected. A people, this I saw something on Twitter the other day. It was like, is, isn't it weird how people are just like, oh yeah, the president's probably going to treat cheat to stay in power, and everyone's like, oh yeah, he's just going to try and do it, and everyone's okay with it. Um, which is really sad because it's a possibility that and there's been um I can't remember I saw this article. I, I think it was on. CNN a while ago um I can't remember who it was from sorry but um, they said that it's expected that Trump is going to try if he loses the election is expected that he's going to attempt to stay in power for longer um which is obviously the election obviously the elections in November and the president is sworn in in January so in the two months when you're the uh the lame duck president you aren't really permitted to pass any meaningful legislation because you you have no mandate you've 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 lost um if you're if you're an incumbent that's lost the election um mm. so it's just going to be really it's going it's going to be extremely like... interesting i think i think one of the driving factors that i think biden has against that has against trump 
Yeah. Is because obviously he did the thing is as well, he did all of these he did all of these horrible, horrific acts and he still and he still um and he still survived um an impeachment hearing well he didn't survive an impeachment hearing he survived getting removed from office and i think for a lot of people will vote for their republican representative in in their congressional districts and their senators of the state and then ultimately that will then put donald trump in charge and it'll and i think a lot of it will come down to people will vote with the party mm-hmm. people will ultimately vote with the party and as you, as you said i think I think it will definitely be extremely interesting come the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And as I, as I was going to say, the one thing I think that Biden really has going for him that Trump doesn't is that he can really hit Trump hard with the whole mess he's made over COVID. Yeah. I think that's something he can really hit him with. Um, so when, um, when Kelsey came on this podcast too, which it was, that was the fifth episode, obviously uh, she's American and she gave like a first-hand perspective of, of what was of what the outlook for the election was. And she said, like, obviously, Biden's whole thing is electability. Um, and that's always been his thing. Like, he's he's popular. Um, he doesn't really do anything to get himself into trouble. Um, they were, and, I like, mean, they, they were the, they were the oh, assault yeah, of allegations. Of, well, yeah. I've, I've, obviously, I haven't uh, mentioned that at the moment but it's it's a sad state of affairs when both the presidential candidates have standing uh, sexual assault allegations made against them and that literally both candidates with that's a I, <laughs> literally nothing more needs to be said about that but um as, as i said it's the shocking state of corruption in america yeah um but it's just yeah biden's again i, I mentioned before the podcast uh, that biden's in like a kind of similar position to Starmer, um, they have to be the model alternative to the, the the like the sensible model alternative to the guy on the right, who's a bit crazy, basically. Um, that's that's what at least that's at least what they the message that they'd want to portray. Um, and is I feel like Biden this, even though you said like people would might vote with the party, I feel like this is a bit of an issue that transcends party like affiliation obviously you have to be like in america you have to register as like a registered democrat registered independent registered mm-hmm. republican but i feel like this may be an issue that transcends party affiliation and just because um uh because trump himself i guess transcends party affiliation there's a lot and there's a lot of republicans who aren't pleased with with well, they, they, he yeah. has he has a fair amount of um he has a fair amount of opposition from yeah. um from Republicans, and I would certainly like to hope that he um that opposition would be strong enough. But as I, as I said, with the um whole impeachment um debacle involving him getting removed from the Senate, because the GOP had control over the Senate, he actually stayed in power. So yeah. even though there may have been some Republicans voting against him, ultimately he still won out. Mm-hmm. It's just I've really I'm really like in in a weird way looking forward to the election because I just want to see what happens. Um Yeah. It's going to be obviously one of the most unique elections ever with the whole COVID uh, crisis as Trump's been adamant that he wants to get the economy going and back up and running. Because that, that is the one thing he had going for him before the pandemic that um, to everything negative he'd done, he'd boosted 
uh, the USA's economy. And he should be. He's primarily a businessman. He like he's <laughs> that. I'd be. I'm sure most people would be disappointed if he hadn't done that. But um, obviously the economy crashed because of COVID, and now he's lost that one thing that he had going for him, and had a whole. And then since then he's had his terrible handling of the the pandemic. He's had the Black Lives oh, Matter movement, which has again decreased popularity. He's I I've said this before, but he, he's the worst person to be in charge at a time of the Black Lives Matter movement. Even even oh, even God. Boris Johnson, yes. who whether I've said whether he believes in whether he agrees with the Black Lives Matter movement or not, and I don't really think that he does. He had he has the common sense as a politician to say the words Black Lives Matter on television, and even if he doesn't believe it, he's he's gone out and he's gone out and said it. Donald Trump would never say it because of the person that he is, and like, oh, I, I'm gonna get I'm gonna start ranting, so I'm gonna try and keep it short. But like, <laughs> but <laughs> no, um, it's, he's just it, like honestly. the the, the when, <laughs> when uh, in at the uh, the height of the Black Lives Matter movement and then sending like armed police in on in on um innocent like peaceful protesters that's just an example of the disgraceful uh actions he's made as president and like like responding to a movement that started as a result of protest against police brutality he responded to that with more police brutality like it just i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna stop no, myself I, before i get into like no i about, i like, matter and Trump i, I and think i think the problem is is that you had you had a, a lot that went on in terms of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and a lot of progress that was made in the 1960s with civil rights and voting rights in America, especially destabilizing all the, um, the segregation that happened in the Deep South. But then after MLK's death, you had obviously the race riots in LA in the early 90s, I believe they were. And now we're we're in a year of um, such political upheaval, especially in America with the Black Lives Matter movement, with the whole... Um, George Floyd killing and all the protests that took place um, consequently. And I think the problem is, is that America is a system of such racial divide Mm. at its core and of such racial oppression at its core. And I think, I think the problem is, the problem is, as we as we've seen, there was there were you you um you legal you um abolished slavery, and then the deep south basically found a way around that and basically uh, made segregation thing, and then you outlawed segregation, and then there were all the race rights but, that came to a head in the early nineties, and then you've got then you've got the Black Lives Matter protests. I think the problem is is that racism is something that's always going to be prevalent, and there exactly. are always going to be people who will see themselves as better than other groups of people. America's a country that is undoubtedly, like, whether you like it or not, is built on the back of structural oppression. And it's clear now that change is needed, like genuine structural change. If things are to get better in this sense, structural change is needed. And which is why when I look at Joe Biden, he doesn't strike me as the man to do to implement big social change. Um, no, no. Um, he's he'll get he'll get people. In 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 fairness, it's a first step because he won't be able to implement structural change while a man like Trump is in office. Um, but in terms of actually putting b- 
big changes into place and actually trying to combat this issue where it needs to be tackled, I don't think Biden is the man for it. No, I, I don't. I don't think so either. For this next segment, we're going to discuss the issue of Welsh independence. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, when uh, Holly was on the podcast, we discussed, uh, I got a question uh, from Fergal about uh, Scottish independence. Uh, and he said he basically treated it as, uh, the question from Fergal was basically treated as like an inevitability, um, like it was going to happen at some point which I agreed with to an extent. I said it wouldn't happen under a Conservative government, obviously. They are still the Conservative and Unionist Party, um, so it's highly unlikely. Um, but yeah, the issue of Welsh independence, obviously uh, it's not something that directly affects me, even though I do go to university in Wales. But um, not as, as, an, as an Englishman, this isn't something that will ever... I can personally get involved with but obviously you can Liam so I'll let, I'd like to hear your take on it well um I studied oh thanks Sam I am um, I studied um Welsh politics for my um AS level government and politics and we looked at the structures of the Welsh political system and we looked at obviously the government of Wales Act 1998 which obviously gave um Wales its devolved institutions and I think I think devolution is very healthy I think devolution, whether it's in Northern Ireland or whether it's in Scotland or Wales, is healthy because it allows this separate um, political institution to have control over some lawmaking areas, but then it sort of has wider coverage from its base in the wider UK government. And the Government of Wales Act 2006 basically gave Wales primary legislative power and essentially allowed Wales to make laws in certain policy areas without needing to without needing to um consult the wider uk government and you know some of those areas you know, it's like um public administration culture education yeah. and training environment etc and i think having some of those areas of government are very healthy and more recently wales has obtained control over taxation but the issue surrounding welsh independence and especially amongst um, amongst the whole um, the whole um, situation that we're dealing with now, and how yes, Cymru have gained increasing prominence, and the figures are now at about twenty five percent people who want Welsh independence. And the leader of the Welsh Nationalist Party, Ply Cymru, Adam Price, is obviously very charismatic. He's obviously got a very good presence. And he's looking for something special to achieve with Plaid Cymru. And his ultimate goal is independence. But I I unfortunately think, and I, I share this view with Welsh independence, and no, sorry, Scottish independence. I think whether or not it'll happen, and I and I think Scottish independence will with time, and I think there is the possibility that obviously Welsh independence could happen too. But I I still have my concerns for the concept of independence in general and i think that i think that having independence and breaking the uk up even more now that we've come out of the eu will be will be a very risky area and i think i think in in principle i i think independence would be a nice idea 
you know, having sort of more economic freedom, more control. And it would obviously allow Wales and Scotland to go back into, would allow them to go back into the EU if they wanted to. But I, I just think there's just too much of an element of risk there. And Mm. I think what we have at the minute with devolution and we have primary legislative power over more than enough policy areas is healthy enough for Wales and but I, but I also think, in a lot of respects, the system needs reforming. And one instance that I think I want to especially focus on is the HS2 railway. And this really gets my back up, and I can't understand why, um, when it is an when it is a um, a railway that affects England, not Scotland or Wales is being paid for um, money being sent over from Wales when it's something that affects England solely. Yeah. I don't understand that. Um, and I and I do think that Wales does need a little bit more power, perhaps. I think maybe some more prime legislative power, but I don't think independence is perhaps the right way to go right. about it. Okay. I, I know I spent um, <laughs> 10 minutes of this of the new segment criticizing Keir Starmer for always sitting on defense, but obviously this is something that I will have to like sit on defense for mm-hmm. and something that I'm um, not directly affected by. Like obviously I'm not a not a unionist. I'm don't not would not campaigning for the union to stay together and I wouldn't lose sleep if Scotland or Wales left uh, the United Kingdom. And at the same time, like I'm not gonna be campaigning for independence of any of those countries like because just I'm not in a position to um and yeah I, I don't think it's, it's hard for me to say because again I'm not like as I'm not in, involved in the issue I'm not particularly as informed on it but there are like I can see all the pros and cons I like in the long term is it going to be financially in just in just looking at it like in a, from an economic perspective is it going to be financially beneficial to either of those countries to leave no, the union exactly there's a, like, there's a lot it's, of it's, questions exactly it's an unknown i'm not saying it um it won't be um and because i'm sure many people in scotland and wales and northern ireland there's been obviously talks of uh united well there's been arguments for a united ireland for some time now um that's that's a bit of an understatement, but but I won't get into that. But um, yeah, it's there's a lot. There's a massive element of uh, risk involved. It's like again, we don't really know. For for an example, we don't really know what the UK economy, the UK like social social life, what the working world, what everything's going to look like post Brexit. Um, now that we're leaving the European Union, obviously we know what what we're losing and what we're gaining, if anything, in terms of gaining. But, um, uh, well, in, in, t- in a material sense. But we don't, well, there's so many risks and questions and we don't know what it's going to be like. And I guess that is that is um, why people are against uh, independence. As, as, as you said, they are... They, uh, a yes to independence vote is polling around 25 percent um excluding the don't know category which is understandable why a lot of people vote that at, at this point in mm-hmm. time um i think it is uh 32 percent in favor of independence 68 against um that is stands in stark contrast to scotland where the latest polling has the yes vote at about i think it's around 55 percent 
Um, so, so it's interesting, and I, I do, I do personally believe that Scotland will become independent at some point. Um, particularly now that there's a lot more scope for them to work with Keir Starmer in case, if in the in the situation where in the potential scenario where Keir Starmer, uh, Keir Starmer's Labour Party gains the most seats but not enough for a majority, they may need the SNP's help for a coalition. Um, that would have been unlike, unlikely under Jeremy Corbyn because ideologically he didn't have that much in common with the Scottish National Party. Uh, Keir Starmer does seem to though as he's moved closer to the centre. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it could happen in the, in the not too distant future but then again, Welsh independence is a is a different subject. Well, Welsh independence is not in the same position as the as, as Scottish, and yeah. I I think this is this is one problem that's overlooked. And I think a lot of people who support Welsh independence look at Scottish independence as sort of sort of the figurehead of the independence movement, and they sort of see where where Scotland are, and they want to be like Scotland. The thing is, Scotland are in a very different position to Wales. You know, Scotland have control over their lawmaking powers, and they are closer to independence than Wales are. And and I. I think you know I've got a lot of friends who, who are um, in support of Welsh independence and are members of um, the um, activist movement. Um, yes, Camry and and good on to them. And in in fairness, you know Adam Price, you can see he's a very charismatic, good leader of Plaid Camry, and he was especially prevalent in campaigning outside of the Welsh Assembly to um, to um. A, um you know, sort of overturn the decision that was made by the Welsh government in regards to the A-level fiasco. And I do, and I have a lot of respect for him for that because he talked about putting faith back in the teachers, as I mentioned in the new segment of this podcast. And I think what would be, what would be an out, um, an ideal situation is a essential repeat of the One Wales Coalition that we had in 2007, where the government in Wales was split between Roger Morgan, who was the leader of Welsh Labour, and Diane Wynne-Jones, who was the leader of Plaid Cymru at the time. And I think I think a one Wales government in its system could work because you have the Labour Party, who, are, who have the elements of unionism and will look out for Wales in interest to the wider UK. But then you'll have Plaid Cymru, who will obviously have a very Welsh-orientated focus. And I think with Adam Price at the helm of Plaid Cymru, you could strike a very healthy balance there. Mm-hmm. But in regards to what you said about Scottish independence, I definitely think Scottish independence is on the cards. And especially this year... Um, Welsh the the stands for Welsh independence has massively grown and if this pandemic has shown one thing it's that Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford the first ministers of Scotland and Wales respectively um, have given Boris the finger and Boris (laughs) has essentially become the prime minister of England in the past few months instead of being the prime minister of the UK and that Wales and Scotland by themselves in, in their responses to the pandemic have managed very, very well. Yeah. And they're obviously in better positions than England are at the minute. But I would still be very apprehensive and hazy about independence. But as you said, I think Scottish independence is very much on the cards. And I think if Scotland go, 
I think that will give Wales a much bigger mandate to push for independence. But I don't Absolutely. think I don't think Welsh independence would ever happen before Scottish independence. Yeah, did. I agree, a hundred percent. I like Scottish, Scottish independence is the most likely thing to um, break up the union as it exists um, at the moment. And I agree, like if Scottish, if Scottish independence is uh, that movement is successful in the next few years, that could be like you say, the first domino to fall and that could uh, it, that would only increase arguments for uh, a referendum on a united Ireland, uh, a referendum on Welsh independence. Um, but yeah, as you said, this pandemic has shown that that like that the the other nations in the UK are very capable of governing themselves and not like that should be up for debate to start with. I mean, that's obvious, like Mm. They've, each each nation has very capable politicians and devolved governments, but some so again some pe- some people are under the impression, um, particularly particularly unionists that um, that like well strong unionists argue that the union needs to be kept together because these countries basically won't survive outside the union, which is I a, a misguided approach <laughs> I believe, um, but yeah like if you look at Wales, for example, has got like is the lowest, I think, believe the lowest number of cases at the moment, or the lowest rate of infection. Actually, I should say in in the UK, which is why they're being able to um, ease restrictions and like now you're allowed to have an uh, what's been called I think it's an extended arrangement with four households now, um, which is really impressive and like again, as I said, it shows that every government, each nation is going to be capable of governing themselves. And I don't know why people, even before this pandemic, would would think that they weren't, they wouldn't be to start with. I think that the, the, the thing is, is I, I, I can appreciate from the perspective of as well, is that to sort of say it in a polite way that um, a lot like, the Welsh government doesn't necessarily have the respect it deserves in the wider UK government, and in some circumstances, the Welsh um, and the Welsh um, population have felt um, used and abused by um, the English government. And I think a very prominent instance of that, which I learned about actually through my um, through my Welsh um, language A level, was the incident of Capelkelin. Mm-hmm. Um, in the north of Wales, which was a town in um, in the hills, which was actually flooded to make room for a, a reservoir, which would supply the River Mersey in um, the north the northwest of England, and and you know it's I'm because I'm I'm just looking at some of my notes here, and it was it was it was fully incorporated into the english state under the 1536 act of union under um king henry the 8th at the time it abolished the power of local martial lordships and it banned the use of welsh language in official proceedings and documents and you can see that this sort of disdain that a lot of welsh people have had for the wider english and the wider uk government has been carried down from generations to generations and generations and to an to an extent you can understand as well that's why that's what fuels a lot of arguments surrounding independence and as you said there are definitely pros and cons on both sides as i mentioned before i can't understand why the life of me 
um, Welsh money is being used to fund HS2 when that yeah. has absolutely nothing to do with England. You can't even make the argument. You can't even make an argument that it has something to do with Wales because HS2 does not even go through Wales. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of the rail networks connecting North Wales to the south of Wales are very poor in the in themselves. And you you could make a separate argument to. Does England necessarily need another high-speed railway when there's lots of good connections from the north of England to um, London and obviously from South Wales to London as well? There's, there are there are good connections in in England, but like I said, that that's a separate argument. I mean, the whole issue of independence is it is growing, it is growing as we've discussed. And yes, Cameron um, polls now are at a support of about twenty-five percent of independence, and that's only going to go up. And it definitely works in their favour that they've got Adam Price at the helm of sort of the Welsh independence movement, and I think I think Plaid Cymru are probably set to do well in the um in the Senate elections next year. Mm-hmm. But as I said, I think instead of independence, I think a one Wales coalition, which could perhaps reform the way that the Welsh government is viewed by the UK government could be the right course of action for Wales, as opposed to straight-up independence, which is far more risky. For the last segment of the episode, I've got a question from Twitter that we're going to discuss. This is from uh, Callum Callum Wilson on Twitter, not the Bournemouth striker, um, but uh, at it's Callum Wilson on Twitter. He's asked, how can the Labour Party recapture votes it lost to the Conservatives in twenty in the twenty nineteen general election? Um so that's a bit of a bit of a broad question because um like there's a lot of answers to this. Um and we did kind of discuss it when we talked about Keir Starmer earlier. Um personally, uh he he's just got to he's just got to focus on being electable which is again similar to mm. similar to biden and i know i i've, I've already criticized him for not taking a start a strong enough stance on a, a lot of issues but he needs to okay right let me let me let me <laughs> let me try and lay out my thought process here Every, basically um we all knew um that stan was going to move the party away from the left because any leader that's not jeremy corbyn is going to move the party away from the left yes um and that's that's fine even though like um, Corbyn had a lot of uh, policies that pers- on a personal level I would have liked to see I'm w- willing to sacrifice some of them if it meant that, on a personal level if it meant that um, Starmer was to be elected um, and it's fine like I, I was I knew Labour was going to have to move to the centre to get elected and that's okay um, but yeah I feel like Starmer just has to be the sensible alternative I don't, I don't feel like he can keep up this act of sitting on the fence and being boring for ages because whether even though Starmer does perform very well in uh things like PMQs he is like he's quite like calculating and uh, calculated and calm and like he he's comes across very well he's not he's not charismatic in the same way that Boris Johnson is because Boris Johnson is a, a good talker even though he talks a lot and says some things that don't make sense. He knows how to, Seven. yeah. <laughs> he he knows how to he knows how to get his point across. He knows how to get people to listen to him, and he knows how to gain support. He comes across, even though like he's a stereotypical 
Eton boy. He comes mm-hmm. he comes across as like, oh, just Boris, look, Boris, look at Boris, look at his hair. He's a laugh. Like, yeah, I could go for a pint with him. That's that's his whole image, and he pulls it off successfully. And Keir Starmer, I feel like him being just the, the moderate, sensible guy is might work, but I feel like he needs to just create more of an more of an identity for himself if he is to get elected at uh, the next election. You know, I think one of the biggest biggest reasons why Corbyn failed so much in 2019 was because of the whole Brexit situation. Yeah. And I think a lot of people were just in a, in a state of flux where they were just like, oh, for Christ's sake, let's just, let's just get Brexit out of the way now. Yeah. And you have Boris who came thundering along and was like, we're going to be going to be leaving the eu you know no yeah. ifs no buts get brexit blah, 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 done blah, blah. was the campaign get, slogan. yeah exactly get brexit done and he was given all these promises and i think that is what helped him break the northern the northern wall yeah um so to be honest brutally um destroying um the prominence of labor at the north and i think that's why um boris became so successful in his campaign mm-hmm. and garnered such a stonking majority and and I think that the the problem is is that ultimately, in fairness, I think Jeremy Corbyn did all right in the twenty seventeen election. Mm-hmm. You know, when when he appeared at Glastonbury and he was appealing to the youth and everything, and I think that massively worked in his favour. But there and then, you also had Theresa May, who was crap. So, was it really who was less crap? Was that more the argument of was that more the argument of that election? Whereas this whereas this one, it was just a simple case of that Boris Johnson came along, Corbyn was out of his depth. He had gone from dealing with Theresa May to dealing with Boris Johnson. And I think Boris Johnson just came along and wiped the floor with him. And as you said, Boris Johnson, even though he's a bumbling idiot, people people he gets the publicity. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with Trump. Trump gets the publicity, you know. It's um, yeah, he's a, the pop, it's all like, about right-wing populism is like a growing idea, like a growing and and he's and he's just like, taken advantage of that. Yeah, isn't he? and he's like just completely hopped on board of that, seen it's working for him in this political climate, and use it to his advantage, which he's done well. In fairness, um, as you said, Brexit was a massive issue in the twenty nineteen election, and as you said, people just like, oh, come on, let's just get it over with. Um, Labour's policy of Labour, obviously Labour's policy, uh, Brexit policy at the election was to go to get Corbyn to negotiate a new deal as opposed to the one that Boris had already negotiated and then bring it back and put it in a referendum, um, which is obviously controversial to a lot of people because a lot of people just wanted to get Brexit done. Um, per- I personally, obviously I wasn't old enough to vote in the EU referendum. I would have voted Remain, but that being said now, uh, I've said this before. Um, I would have like you have to, now that it's been voted for. You have to push on with it, and I do understand why people want to want to have it done now because it, like mm. we spent four four years now since the uh, the referendum. Um, people want to move past this issue. Going back on a referendum result and changing it or ignoring it sets a dangerous precedent for referendums in the future. Exactly, um, because re- referendums are an important part of direct democracy. Exactly, and you've you've got to uphold that people have voted for the fact that they want to leave the EU. So you have an obligation, be that for better or worse, that you have to deliver on that promise. And that's me looking at it from a completely neutral mm-hmm. point of view. You know, looking yeah. back on it now, I would have definitely voted Remain because I think we are safer in the EU. But 
as I said, same with independence. Like, I think we, we are stronger as, as a UK, but I I think the problem was is that you know Boris Boris came along definitely, mm-hmm. and he was and he set Theresa May back on course. who was a bit more bumbling all over the place, and he was like, "We're going to be doing this, and we're going to be doing this now." And as soon as he got um, as soon as he got um, his majority, he was pushing bills through through Parliament that yeah. Theresa May had tried time and time again to push, and it just worked. Yeah, and. It shouldn't be forgotten, but I feel like people have that Keir Starmer was the architect of Labour's Brexit policy at the uh, 2019 election. He is one of the biggest remainers in the Labour Party, and he was uh, the shadow Brexit secretary at the time of the election. Um, Which is, I find it interesting that that's going under the radar. I feel like it might come back to bite him in the future if, like, say, he is gaining in popularity and then. One of the like an arguments against him was like, well, he was trying to undermine the Brexit vote, basically, which that's an argument for whether he was or not, because he was still leaving an op- an option on the table. I did understand the policy of a second referendum because people didn't know, no, like a lot of people didn't know what was to come. Um, no one could have really predicted like how it was, <laughs> how this issue of Brexit was going to turn out. But at the same time, as I said, it sets a dangerous precedent and. Like, exactly, and if and you can make the argument as well if you have a second referendum, are you basically saying that you have no confidence in the British people to exactly, vote effectively? Exactly. Are the government saying they have no confidence in themselves mm. to deliver upon the decision that they said they were going to make? There's yeah. all kinds of questions you could ask from that, and it would just open a massive can of worms. So I, I just like I think that he's a. Uh, I think I think that he's a bit he's a bit lucky that like. The election is going to be uh, so far removed from the issue of Brexit, considering it's going to be in 2024. Um, well, I say so far removed. By that time, we will start to be seeing the effects of Brexit. Um, but so while he won't have that on his plate to deal with, as Corbyn did uh, going into the election, he's he's got to focus on reforming Labour, but not just as... He can't be... He can't be like, oh, we're the party that's not the Tories. The Labour Party's got to have its own identity. It can't just be like, it's not. It can't. If you don't like, if you don't like the Tories, vote for us. You've got, you've yeah. got to have your own thing going for you. I know, and I feel like that's what he's relying on because he he's made a point of not politicizing the crisis, to use his own words, um, which is which is fine, fair enough. And he he comes in and takes small jabs at the Tories when he sees fit, um, and. I'm not saying he should be like constantly attacking the Conservative Party like like Corbyn was, because Corbyn arguably did that to his own detriment. Like, he, um, but he's got to like, he's got. A, I know the manifesto will come out eventually, and he'll have his own policies and that. But he's got to build up his own identity. And to answer the question, I feel like that's what he's got to do to win back seats. You know, he was he was the director of the Crown Prosecution Service, and he was a he was a, he's been a barrister for many years, and he was on Chief Counsel. And we've seen from Prime Minister's questions, he holds up all these documents and things that he's had to read that morning, and he's just and like 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 a professional lawyer would, he's gone in there and he just completely annihilated Boris. And it was quality entertainment, especially in the thick of it when those two were going at it. And I think, unfortunately. Yeah, the next election will be Starmer and Johnson and the way that he will have to fight it 
I think politicizing the pandemic, unfortunately, is going to be a massive part of it because the Tories are going to come out with everything that they can, knowing they've done a shit job, but trying in every possible way to spin it and make it look like they've done a good job. Keir Starmer is going to have to go on the attack Mm. and take everything he can from them. And I think at that point, that's fair game. I don't feel like it's like, I I feel he's on the of the mindset that it's not really appropriate to consistently have a go at the government and make a political point out of uh, this pandemic, which has unfortunately killed so many people during the mm. pandemic. But by the time the next election rolls around, the government will have to be scrutinised. The dust will hopefully have settled, and at that point, I think it's pretty much fair game if because their treatment, the government's treatment of uh, their handling of the pandemic, I should say, has to be looked back upon. Um, and the leader of the opposition is the one, should be the one to do that. Because I, I think as, as Jenny Harry said, there was a, there was a, um, it was, it was a conference. It was many, many months ago. I think she's the deep, the deputy chief medical officer. And she yeah. said that there will come a point where we will look back on this with hindsight. We will look back on all of these statistics and we will be able to say what was right and what was wrong. And by the time the next election rolls around, hopefully we'll be in that position and scrutiny will be much more appropriate than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, that brings us to the end of this episode of the backbench. Thank you so much to listening and thank you if you made it this far. Um, thank you to Liam for coming on. Liam, right. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Liam hosts his own podcast about uh, TV and film. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I have my own podcast. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other streaming platforms called Cinerealm. I'd thoroughly recommend you go check it out if you're a big fan of TV and well. film. So far, I've um, I've discussed the ending of the Big Bang Theory. I've started a mini series on which Joker is the best, and I have more episodes coming out soon, including which Spider Man is the best, and more episodes surrounding how I would rank the Star Wars Skywalker saga. So obviously go over and check that out and big thank you again to sam for having me on and that's all from me yeah um yeah definitely go and check out liam's podcast especially if you're a big fan of um tv and film very very good listen all the time um but yeah as i said thank you for listening to this podcast um if you've got any uh inquiries you can you can email me at uh, benchpod of sam also you can uh, follow the podcast on twitter at benchpod of sam or on instagram at benchpod um, and yeah, if you're interested in uh, coming on a podcast, you can message me on any of those socials. And uh, yeah, um, I'm going to have to, there's going to be no podcast, um, no podcast episodes next week as I'm away, but normal service will resume after that. Um, but as I said, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you soon.